I admire your luck, Mr. Bond. James Bond. This never happened to the other fellow. Were your eyes only die? Mother, she was, must have scared the living daylights out of her. What of you? Hello and welcome to a new edition of For Your Ears Only, Optimism Vaccine's James Bond podcast. My name is Jack Eason. I'm joined by Jake Trapila. How are you doing, Jake? I'm doing just dandy, Jack. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. We're getting to we're we're getting to another end of an era here. Uh, we we're hitting a view to a kill, which is of course the final Roger Moore film. Another. That's, that's right. <laughs> maybe maybe, maybe should have come a little sooner. Well, we'll, we'll get into that. <laughs> it's it's very it's very possible. Yes. Um, even Roger Moore uh, felt so. He uh, famously said he was uh, only about 400 years too old for the part. So yeah, that's um, fair. But uh, yeah, and it uh, it definitely shows. Um, I mean, when you're not looking at a very old Roger Moore, you're you're probably seeing the what looks like on the Blu-ray a very crystal clear face of one of his stuntmen. <laughs> but, yes, um, with with hair that never quite matches up. No, no, unfortunately not. But um, yeah, this is the end of a, a long era for us. It's been a while since we started the Moors, and uh, yeah, seven films later, one we had one Connery in between, but um, here we are. Uh, Here we are, Roger Moore. Wow, what a what a run! And you know, I I just want to say that I I sincerely love Roger Moore, and I enjoy his movies. And I'll, I'm sure a lot of the the younger kids, as they say, don't really like him or respect him as a Bond. I think that Roger Moore serviced the franchise well, and he brought his own his own charm and wit to the role. And there's a very playfulness that's that's very enjoyable. Um, so, you know, kudos to you, Roger Moore, for for having uh, maybe not the strongest run, but certainly one of the most entertaining in, in my in my in Absolutely. my eyes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I would agree with that. Maybe the, the peaks are certainly not as high as a Connery era. But uh, yeah, I mean, Roger Moore is there's definitely there's a fun there. And as you say, uh, I, for me, honestly, Roger Moore was the bond of my childhood. And we we're actually yeah. with a view to a kill. Getting to, I, I I don't remember what was the first James Bond movie I ever watched. It might have been this one. It might not. But I know for a fact this is the James Bond movie I have seen the most. Oh, uh, this was always on TV when I was a kid. So I watched it. But and we're I, I watched it all the time as a kid. I don't even know how many times I've seen this. Uh, and then I hadn't watched it for nearly twenty years. So this is uh this is kind of weird. This is like a surreal dream coming back. Like every I remember all of it, but it's sort of like fuzzy at it you know so kind of a strange uh, like time travel actually which is kind of cool and maybe yeah maybe he's going to give me a little bit more of a positive spin to this film than maybe uh, others might might have i will note that this film and i was a little surprised with this uh view to a kill has the lowest critical score on rotten tomatoes it yeah. has a 37 percent approval rating and that's just Right at the bottom, excluding Casino Royale, the uh, the not Daniel Craig one, the the other version, which I think we can right. both agree is dire. Yeah, it's uh, dire. Deserves, and it doesn't really count. Deserves its lowest thing. But yeah, I mean, uh, we have a View to a Kill, and we have Octopussy at forty two percent, and Man with well, the Gun at forty four percent. I think this film's better than both of those easily. It's um, very interesting you say that because I've always enjoyed, uh, like you, just a little background. This is one that I've seen the most because of TV. I feel like, mm-hmm. thanks to Spike TV, I've seen uh, Octopussy, Moonraker, and A View to a Kill the most. Because whenever I think of Roger Moore, I always associate him with space, uh, <laughs> Egypt, 
and uh, Paris. And so I've seen um, A View to a Kill plenty of times. I always enjoy it when it's on. Um, and it's one that I enjoy despite recognizing a lot of its uh, glaring flaws, I'll have to admit. Sure. <laughs> but um, coming into this project, you know, I was looking forward to, I'm always looking forward to revisit these and see where I stand. And I was always historically more favorable on Octopussy, but that film kind of diminished in my mind on the last viewing. And A View to a Kill rose with this viewing, and I think this might be my favorite viewing of it yet. I really enjoyed it. Um, I don't know what it was, but there's... I I love Roger Moore, but God bless him. I think he's the weakest part of this movie because there's really a lot of strong elements working around him. Um, uh, I I, I may have spoken too soon. We didn't didn't even mention Stacey Sutton. But um, (laughs) there... Yeah, there's a lot to... Lot to dig here. Um, I really like uh, a view to a kill. Uh, yeah, all right, at so, least I did this this go around. Sure. So okay. So um, I guess we will dive in with with a film that that, that opens with not a pre credit sequence. <laughs> it opens with a disclaimer, which the is the only one to date. But yes, get, yeah, go ahead. Un- unexpected. Yes, that this it it lets us know that Zorin Inc. is not representative of any real life companies, and and apparently this came about. Uh, because after they made the film, they found out about Zoran Inc. Yeah. Who, I don't know. I don't even know what they were in. I, I imagine. I don't think they were a household name to begin with. If this was meant as a scathing uh, pastiche of this corporation, I don't think it would have been lost on everyone because no one had heard of the company. Well, well just to just to clear themselves. Yeah. Well, we're uh, assured to be they were Zoran. So a little background. It was actually, believe it or not, a multinational digital technology company. Founded in 1983 in Silicon Valley. Um, oh, okay, so all right, a little close to home. Then. It's very close to home if you know what the hell is going on with the plot of this movie. Um, so yeah, that's. Uh, I'm I'm glad that they covered themselves on that because otherwise people would have thought this was some sort of, oh I don't know, scathing indictment of the uh, the the yes. microchip industry. <laughs> Just as well it wasn't Max Apple and his corporation <laughs> on the rise. Otherwise, this film may never may never survived. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so we open with our disclaimer, just to let us know that apparently the Bond universe is fictitious. Right. Um, always helpful to have that reminder. And then we were brought to Iceland, where where they shot it. I don't know. It's Russia, I it's guess. It's supposed uh, to be Siberia, but yeah, I guess they, they shot sure. it in Iceland. So we have one of, uh, honestly... One of, again, maybe just the other watch all the time, very memorable chase. Uh, James Bond finds a body of 003. Right. Never seen alive in this film, as many of the 00s seem to be. His fellow agents don't have quite the survival rate. Um, so he finds a necklace uh, with a ginormous microchip in the back of it. And as microchips go, certainly uh, not, not as small as it could be. And he then gets chased by Russian agents and he has to do... A lot of weird things. There's a couple of elements in this. We have uh, California girls with Beach Boys playing, yeah. ironically, over over the ski chase, which is uh, maybe not a great plan personally, but I'll. It's at least it's not a slide whistle. Uh, you, once you do the slide whistle, everything else just seems like kind of a eh, okay, whatever. Yeah, I Fine. can I can you know. sort of forgive the uh, the Beach Boys. Um, it's fun. It's I'm throwing my hands in the air. It's different. Um, yeah, it's it's very it feels very much more like Roger Moore and not just a a bad idea that a, a sound mixer had when editing a movie. Um, 
It's true. It also, I feel like, if because there isn't a lot of recognizable music. If I'm struggling to think of any other recognizable music within a Bond film, yeah. they don't you know they don't really use pop music this, anywhere. This is the first instance, as far as right. I know, where uh, w- w- you hear, uh, and it's not even it's not even a diegetic track. It's uh, just yes. thrown on there as a as a punchline. But yeah, this is the first instance of a pop song that is not one of the title songs thrown into a Bond film. Yeah, so it's so it's an interesting touch, and um, I, yeah, and it kind of we talked about with Never Say Die uh, or Never Say Never Again, rather. So yeah. there's so many dying in James Bond <laughs> films. I'm just sticking the word die into every single yeah. one of them. Well, uh, but, I, uh, I I should interrupt. I think we've I don't know if we mentioned it on the last one or if it was announced, but uh, Bond 25 is now known as uh, No Time to Die. So No uh, Time to Die, this, indeed. This is no longer a Bond 25 countdown. This is a No Time to Die countdown podcast. Uh, ah, but uh, but. Yeah, temper yourself, guys. It's, it's we're counting down. We're gonna we're gonna get to the end of this franchise just in time to we're, hit the cinema and catch that one. So. That is our promise to you, listeners. Uh, yes. Anyways, uh, back to what you're <laughs> so, saying about something about yeah, dying. yeah. So so back to I guess um, ne- never say it ever again. We talk about was kind of the most eighties Bond film to date, even though it wasn't particularly eighties. Uh, and it strikes me this film isn't particularly eighties either, or despite having a couple of key touchstone points to it yeah but it's supposed it's interesting to include the beach boys which obviously not 80s no. either but is something that creates a timeline or kind of asserts a, a sense of of history into the franchise it's it's just sort of an interesting thing to me that it's it's retro it's a retro music choice for 1985 uh, it is a cover. It's not the original Beach Boys song, but yeah. just kind of an interesting sense of like that Bond is maybe out of time, but is at least now acknowledging sort of that you know it's come along quite a bit. Yeah, um, it's. I was trying to look up the the band who who did the cover of the song, but yeah, it's oh, yeah. it's it's very interesting. And, and John Glenn, this is a so yeah, View to a Kill, of course, nineteen eighty five. This is a director John Glenn's third out of five movies. Um, yeah, he doesn't, uh, he kind of has a, I don't know if this is a, the right phrase, but he kind of has a very 70s sensibility to him when he's at least staging the action sequences. Um, it's not, uh, not very 80s-esque. Um, and, uh, I guess because, you know, he started out in the 70s, at least directing the series. But, um, uh, yeah, Never Say Never Again just feels like a strange anomaly with, like, it's just smoky interiors and everything with, uh, Everything in a view to a kill just looks so like nice and, and crisp. It's it's very it's v- yeah, not very nice and crisp. Grand. And then again, of course, all of the locations used again so ironically for Silicon Valley set. Like this is a, a film yeah. that takes as its center point the cutting edge of the cutting edge, the the most forward looking part of the world yeah. as it would describe itself. And we spend a large time in like a French palatial mansion, like old gold gilded gilded like everything uh just uh, i don't know bond can't help himself we run up the eiffel tower you know which yeah. is not quite the cutting edge at that point no. but anyhow so we, we open with this this uh, ski chase which is it's not an amazing sequence in terms of bond it's certainly never going to match that big ski jump that we got uh you know a couple of films back but um it does have something that has absolutely always stuck in my mind which is as a kid this for some reason just really seemed super cool to me that at one point bond's ski is shot and it breaks and he's only got one ski and he has to he replaces the one ski with a uh like a wider piece of metal that comes off of some a snowmobile crashing or something and yeah. then he like snowboards and axe
aquaplanes across like a little river. And I always just thought that was like the coolest thing that he was like going from snow and then he just crosses right over liquid, like skeets right across it. Uh, for some reason that to me is much cooler and I remember that whereas when he gets into a submarine that is literally disguised like an iceberg <laughs> I'd forgotten that element which you know you think would be the money thing you know that would really stick in your imagination but uh, no not for me I was more more captured by the basic physics of being able to slide over water if you maintain a certain speed yeah, so um, well, that, I mean that's the, that's Bond's specialty. He can master any single aircraft, vehicle, what have you. Um, if you put it in his hands, he can do it better than anyone else. That's uh, that's part of the uh, the charm of the character, I would say. Um, you know, I, I always I enjoy things like that, like all the all the soldiers skiing after him, and he and it's funny to think of it as Roger Moore too is the one who's snor- snowboarding away to safety. Um, yes, Roger Roger Moore definitely having the physique of a of a ex sports <laughs> winter athlete. Yeah, it's a, I mean it's a good thing he, they you know he's got a big fur coat on you can't really see his face. Um, but uh, yeah, I think this is a this is a perfectly engaging uh, opening pre title sequence. It leads into a submarine where there's a there's a gorgeous blonde waiting for him. Naturally, she looks like she's about one third his age. Um, he's got a microchip, he's got a bottle of wine, he's got a giant case of caviar, and they're, like, ready to set sail back to Alaska. Um, I yeah, his expense reports must be insane, but I guess this is well-established <laughs> within the within the franchise at this point. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, but anyways, yeah, after uh, a solidly engaging uh, pre-title sequence, we hear this. Duran Duran and Jack I'm just gonna go ahead and say it I think this is the best Bond theme song uh period I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna fight you I mean it is awesome I listen to Duran Duran like just in my own time oh yeah same here 
so so yeah no this is and yeah sure okay maybe it's my age whatever i love i love that apparently this came about because uh the basis of duran duran uh, just got drunk at a party and approached uh Al broccoli and asked him when he was going to have a decent band to do the song <laughs> which is even more rock and roll i feel than maybe a lot of duran duran stuff is but they're they're a great movie band i feel like they're they have a lot of they have a lot of movie stuff through their music so this is a really natural yeah kind of thing i mean girls on film obviously has this whole film obsession and then the chauffeur which is i think one of their best songs has like the the music video that is like uh, basically like straight up plagiarizing the night porter yeah to a large degree so yeah no it's a really come undone it's fantastic yeah yeah and and i mean we might talk about how it's not 80s the film doesn't really have a major 80s feel but this theme song uh, there's no divorcing this from the decade yeah, I mean, and you bring up a good point. Movies need to utilize Duran Duran more often. I mean, it's it's, it's as simple as that. Uh, it's true, but the only place I keep hearing them nowadays is in Trader Joe, which is less <laughs> exciting than... Yeah, it's an, enough so, to get you to pause whatever you're listening to on your uh, headset to hear Duran Duran on the, the Muzak speakers. But um, yeah, after a, a series of like very like soft ballads, this is just a, a rocking kick-ass theme song and i think with a view to a kill a lot of things we've mentioned off mic a lot of we're seeing a lot of great stuff popping up again uh the villains in particular are another highlight for the movie but we'll get to oh, them yeah. but uh yeah i dig the hell out of this song it is so much fun to drive to work and play this and sing it at the top of your lungs and it just it has like the, the craziest lyrics about phoenixes and fire and and, uh, yeah, it leans it leans really nicely into because um, I mean let let's clear the the way here. A view to a kill. Even the, the original story was from a view to a kill. Yeah, they shortened it to a view to a kill. Neither of these phrases make sense. I don't know what that's about. There's basically. yeah, I can get in a little bit into the um, the short story. Um, so first, let me mention I went back and checked. Um, Octopussy is at, or well, if you've been following along on all the Bond films, at the very end of the credits, it always says, James Bond will return. And up through the end of Octopussy, they always had the name of the next film planned out. Um, so Octopussy said, actually said, um, James Bond will, will return in From A View To A Kill. Uh, clearly, they shortened it for this film. But uh, at the end of this movie, there is no uh, title. They didn't know what they were going to do next. So they, from then on, here on in, it's just James Bond will return. Um, but, uh, yeah, so From a View to a Kill, it's, it's adapted from one of the Fleming short stories, uh, that's in his, I believe it's the Four Year Eyes Only novel, has, like, five short stories. Um, it's about a sniper who picks off, uh, another double-O agent on a motorcycle, um, and Bond basically has to investigate, hunt down, and kill a sniper, and I guess From a View to a Kill indicates the, the sniper scope to the point of his target. Um, I guess yeah. Uh, in that in that very incredibly specific context, yes. it almost makes sense as something you might say. Yeah, there, almost. <laughs> there is n there is no sniping in uh, the movie of You to a Kill, and the context in which the line is used, which is uh, amazing, um, yes. it doesn't make any sense at all. Um, but I would still probably go to bat for it as the best uh, titular line rating of a movie, where they say the title. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. Christopher Walken just has that big, goofy nod at the end of it as if he knows. Oh, yeah. He's, yeah, he's selling this. If, if you're, I mean, if you're fans of this podcast, I think it's played in the intro of our uh, of every episode. You can hear it um, said. But, uh, yeah, so A View to a Kill, um, 
craziest title. Uh, it has a very fun, because when I write the films out, I often write them out in acronyms. It's got a very fun, like, AVA tacker is how it's spelled, but... Um, yeah, I yeah. mean, craziest title. Okay, a fair. We do have octopusy. Let's let's not put octopusy. No mean, one puts octopusy in the corner. Yeah, but uh, yeah, <laughs> that's that's just seemed like they were just pushing the limits. This is just kind of like, it kind of sounds like uh, what? Sorry, <laughs> which you know, not that bad. At least it's memorable. It's not die, die, no time to die, die another day, tomorrow never dies. Yeah, there's you know, uh, I'm not you know, that's not the best uh, formula, honestly, especially when you mix it in with you know. Too old to die young, and oh, dying. Yeah. You know all these other films that they, there seems to be a lot of them right now. I think the Bonds have they should have they should have diversified, but we'll get to that. Yeah, when we get to that. Yeah. So yeah. All right. Well, uh, anyways, moving on uh, from that amazing uh, opening credit sequence, which is just uh, worth watching on YouTube alone if you're uh, curious. Uh, Actually, that that credit sequence has like the with the with the sharp neon markup in it. It just reminded me a little bit of Liquid Sky, which I that's don't know if there was any kind of an actual overlap between the two, but yeah, kind of an interesting interesting reference point. Yeah, that's a that's another great looking movie. Um, and with Grace Jones here, it almost like I feel like maybe there could have been an overlap between them in terms of their, they were doing things. But but I don't know. I have no idea. That's just purely a purely me very, throwing stuff together. Yeah, very interesting. Um, just a little little uh, little final trivia as uh, Duran Duran winds down here. But uh, uh, it was the only Bond song to uh, appear number one on the U.S. Hot 100 Billboard. Uh, so far, yeah, it's the only song in America to do that, and it reached uh, number two on the UK singles. And uh, this uh, song uh, netted A View to a Kill its only award nomination, uh, Golden Globe for uh, Best Song. Uh, unfortunately, it did not win, and I did not write down the winner because I don't believe that is any other song could have beaten this one. Um, yeah, no, it's... I'm pretty sure I don't listen to that while driving around the place thinking Ex I'm a badass. Exactly. Yeah. Well, all right. Anyway, so um, after uh, after the opening, um, after the opening credits, we get to uh, MI6. Bonds return with the microchip. Uh, they've determined the microchip was manufactured by Zorin Industries. Uh, so they go to the horse races where Mac Zorin, played by Christopher Walken, our villain, uh, likes to uh, watch his horse Hercules run the races. Uh, so uh, yes. this is a this is kind of a fun outing because the entire MI6 office uh, dresses up and goes in a company's bond onto this horse race. Uh, this is, that track. is an interesting touch. I just want to backtrack just a little bit in terms of aging the film. That in that scene in MI6, sure, they have a sequence where they describe what Silicon Valley is and where it's located, <laughs> which is just not something you need to do anymore. Yeah. So kind of kind of an interesting point. It's like, really? Um, okay. But I guess it, it was just getting started that you probably still afford a house there at that time. And my God, if you bought one, <laughs> you'd be doing pretty well now. Yeah. But anyhow, yes. So we have, uh, this is uh, Miss Moneypenny, this is Lois Maxwell's final yes. outing. Also, so, also another end of an era. She's... She's been with us since the beginning in all uh, 14 of the films from uh, from Dr. No all the way through here. She has not missed a single film. And, you know, it's even if you're only appearing for maybe less than two minutes of screen time, it's still a it's still an indelible part that she's played in the franchise. And I uh, I certainly love her little repartee with Bond and uh, she'll certainly be missed. Yeah, definitely. It's it's yeah, it's feels a little bittersweet. Um, they reintroduced the hat gag, which they hadn't done for years, right? Uh, to kind of just to to bring it full circle, where he 
Mr. Moore pretends to throw her hat, but then doesn't. She has to go horse racing with her very expensive floppy brimmed hat. That's right, yeah, she's and got her they, bonnet. And they, they hit the track where... I, I kind of love this whole subplot. It's I'd forgotten... A, I remember there were horses and horse racing. <laughs> i kind of forgotten the whole goofy steroid injection, like, subdermal, like, uh, semi-bionic thing they were doing. Which, I, I mean, frankly, drug-testing horses fine you know it can beat that but it's like i don't think you can you know sneak stuff into the horses and that would be undetected it uh, is this seems like overly yeah. elaborate <laughs> it is insane how much attention is paid to the horse subplot and for it to not factor into any part of the no. rest of the movie um because i horses i i this is the bond film i also accompany you know i said paris earlier but horses is another one the horses yes. do not come back after what feels like oh i don't know an hour of screen time no is given silicon to valley horses. is not known for horses no. really and that's where it all rests on microchips and then it's horses but um yeah it's it's kind of nice this was um well, they go to uh, where? Where do they shoot? It's Ascot is the the place they right. shoot. You know, big horse race thing, and we have. Uh, I mean, it does. It's not a particularly lively sequence in terms of the horse racing. It looks like they did some, you know, standard shots of horses running. Yeah. But we do get our original uh, sight of Max Zorn and of course Mayday, yes. our chief hench hench woman hench person. Um, Grace Jones, I think, is is always blurring that line, and certainly in the mid eighties in. <laughs> kind of in in the bond franchise in a very kind of you know conservative franchise she was definitely brought in specifically to mess with that um yeah which i fully appreciate i think again we talk about great villains i think the mayday zarin uh duo are they really are they elevate honestly the film is theirs um, absolutely i mean this is uh not since i would say the man with the golden gun which is so clearly dominated by christopher lee that do we mm -hmm. have uh, which kind of is unfortunate because I think we both agree that's sort of like uh, so far the nadir of the at least the official EON productions. Yeah. But um, well, yeah, and I think the man with the golden gun was like it's uh, Christopher Lee does everything right, but it's just the film can't support what he's doing. Like there's so much more to be explored, and they never really get around to it. So yeah, it's it's kind of he's he's left out in an island in that movie. Yeah, but but uh, man, yeah, Zorin and Mayday, they're they're amazing together. I I love this uh, villain couple. Um, I love her introduction where she's she's the only person capable of. Uh, of controlling the horse uh and it's she looks like she could beat a horse to death with her own bare hands that's how fierce she looks on camera um it, it's it's yeah they're 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 amazing it's true yeah grace jones and of course grace jones really started she had a few smaller roles but i think her breakthrough was in and uh, conan the destroyer which was a year prior to this which was also a very horse-centric role she was as they all had to ride around and stuff so i don't know if she's trained around uh, the equine grouping but uh she she handles herself very well here she didn't really have to do anything she never gets to like body slam a horse which i feel like the film is always like a hair's breadth away from doing just for the hell of it yeah and says so she body slams some russian agent at some point um that's right because <laughs> why not and he plays in like because what, what i love about these villain grouping and and bond like the bond things they always have villains who think big etc but what i really enjoy about zarin is um 
firstly, we have a, like, Nazi baby subplot, which is, yeah. that's a great pulpy thing to go in for, that, that Zarn is a product of Nazi experimentation. But also what I really love is they keep talking about how he's a psychopath. That's right. Uh, you know, and that's really serious. That, like, makes him very, very bad. And it's like, looking back on the history of Bond villains and James Bond himself, I think psychopath is maybe not the rarest uh, behavioral disorder that we might have. I feel like there's there's a lot of borderline personality disorders on display when people are trying to flood the earth or repopulate the moon uh, or, you know, just detonate nuclear bombs everywhere. Uh, you know, it's kind of it's then weird to harp on the fact that Zarn's a psychopath, but they, they do lean into it very successfully in the final uh, finale, which we'll get to. So, yeah, I, I just really enjoy Zarn as uh, he's just a really good pulpy villain and then mayday what i like about mayday honestly is oh grace jones obviously is kind of she's just her own thing you know you you can't there's no you know there's no capturing that with anyone else you just had to have grace jones and then you just yeah. kind of have to let grace jones be on the screen um but she has she's super strong is, is it the steroids or is it just her it's never clarified it's, as yeah. far as i'm aware even um, uh, even q equips that looks like she's been taking her vitamins which is <laughs> kind of funny um so yeah so the, there's this weird uh kind of incestuous kind of thing with their experimentation and of course the fact that uh, zarn has his, his proud father uh with him to his proud nazi scientist dad yeah. walking around uh dr karl mortner which isn't even a particularly germanic name um, which you know, so so he's around. They have like a, they have like this movie is a mad Nazi scientist and everything. It's got it's hitting all the right notes from the villainy it's, perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And I was if I don't have uh, I think Matthew Bachow is that his name? Uh, he is another henchman uh, who's kind of like a, just a right hand man, um, an extra gun uh, named Scarpine. Um, oh, Patrick Bochow. Patrick yeah. Bochow, there we go. Yeah, so he's... Scarpine, yes. He actually uh, it was one of the reasons I really liked the viewing this time around because he kind of... He stood out for me as, like, being one of the highlights of the film and I... And it's it's crazy that you noted like off mic. He has like such an extensive filmography. He's worked with all sorts of directors and has had a career spanning decades. I mean, he's still yeah. He got working. his got to start with Eric Romare of all people. Yeah. Um. And then yes, Dario Argento, and he was in an it, Emmanuel amazing. Four. Yeah. No, he's all, all over the place. And of course, View to a Kill, which honestly is I mean, you know you know if he's a good good company exactly i mean if you, if you land a role in a bond film you're pretty much i mean that's like that's it's almost like a dream because then you know people will see your movies hundreds of times and they'll always like note you as being one of the one of the parts that you can makes always it memorable show up or, to yeah you can always show up to a festival exactly you have whatever, you're, you know? you're basically if that's your thing of course you you have yes you yeah that, there's probably the downsides that sometimes the festival probably shows up to you sometimes too yeah but you know so you you surely know that when you sign on uh, and of course just on the subject of henchmen as we discuss it briefly of course we also have a uh, mr dolph lundgren who shows up briefly That's not right. as a henchman but as a hired heavy in the background yeah and uh, it's in his film debut um a wordless background role but you can see him briefly uh, who got the part of course because he was dating grace jones That's at the right. time and uh, he was, so he was on set because she was on set, and uh, he may or may not have still been her bodyguard. I know that's how they originally were, you know, knew each other and then started dating. Yeah. Um, but uh, but apparently they were short, one heavy on set, so 
well, there was that guy standing there, so he came on in. And, of course, fits in with the steroid theme, because in Rocky Four, you know, it all fits together. He would go on to become a heavily steroided killing machine of his own. Yeah. It's funny how the, the Broccoli's sort of cast whoever's hanging around the film set uh, to be in their films, because they, like, they, they first saw Pierce Brosnan because his wife had a role in uh, For Your Eyes Only, and Cubby Broccoli looks over and says, oh, who's that guy? He could be the next Bond. Um, yeah, but yeah, uh, Dolph Lundgren. He he plays a he has no lines. He plays a guy named Venz, and he's uh, General Gogol, who's like M's Russian counterpart. Uh, it's revealed that not only is uh, Christopher Walken's Zorin a, a Nazi uh, experiment, but he's also basically um, under the the handle of the KGB, and he he's kind of going rogue from them to do his own mission. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's a uh, one of those uh, before they were famous moments. Uh, keep an eye out if you see this movie for uh, Dolph Lundgren. Yes, keep an eye in the background. That's he's, right. He's in focus. He's in focus for a little bit yeah. here and there, but mostly you can just see. Honestly, it's, it's impressive because his he's his blue eyes still kind of like shoot through into the scene. He's got like kind of a natural screen presence through that. He's certainly still notable. But I, I will admit, I think it's really funny if you watch him in the background, his eyes are darting all over the place. I feel like he's... he's as much as he's not doing anything on set, he looks like he's thinking really hard. He's yeah, he's yeah. It's it's you know, it's definitely a, a case of a first timer. But yeah, he's also, it, it, it's like he's wary of how dangerous Zorin is and is looking to see if he could move at any moment. But uh, yeah, Dolph Lundgren, he's in there. Um, yeah. So okay, so we're back. We're 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 at the horse races. After the horse um, races, um, we go to Paris, where there is a French detective who's been investigating. Uh, Zorn's use of steroids in the horses and this leads to uh, Bond having lunch with him at the uh, top of the uh, restaurant at the top of the Eiffel Tower uh, which as you do yep. in conspicuous quiet location uh-huh. that restaurant does not exist in real life but uh, yep they're on the top of the Eiffel Tower and uh, while they're um, eating a, uh, a butterfly show uh, appears um, where it's just a woman who is commandeering butterflies or fake butterflies that are floating out of a fan below her and then there's a like a, a guy dressed in all black ninja garb hiding in the wings with a fishing pole where he's swinging around another butterfly yeah, it's, it's like that yeah that that like old japanese puppetry form the where they blend into the background because they're all dressed in black yeah this one is confusing to me though as, as a kill so so we, we find out uh, one of this guy in the black bodysuit gets replaced by mayday and yeah. mayday then uses some kind of a fishing hook which i'm gonna presume is poisoned because otherwise there's no way this would kill right. someone if she barely lashes punctures his yeah, skin like it would it would hurt like hell not gonna deny that but you're not gonna die from getting a fish hook in your face it's just not that's not how it works but he dies instantaneously but what confused me about this is that roger moore is clear like the editing of this scene shows that roger moore is clearly paying attention to these guys and sees this as a risk yeah and he's looking at it and then mayday just comes out and kind of unceremoniously there's just two of them up on the platform and bond has just been looking up there like a split second beforehand and then mayday unceremoniously just kind of like punches the guy out and just throws him away and takes over and Bond the super spy never notices and uh, loses his contact as a result yeah so and, oops and but before, then uh, and before Bond gives chase uh, for Mayday who flees he looks at his dead colleague and says there was a fly in his soup again and Zoran's a psychopath yeah so <laughs> he has enough time yeah. to make a quip at a guy who's just slain in front of him 
Yeah, and ruined how many vacationers' time at the Eiffel Tower. Oh, I know. But the, obviously, they pro- the restaurant probably had to comp all of those meals. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, that's very disturbing, and yeah. I'm sure it's not cheap up there. Yeah. So uh, Bond follows Mayday out, and we have uh, a chase and uh, some shooting and ricocheting of bullets off before Mayday escapes by base jumping off the Eiffel Tower, which is kind of one of the big showcase stunts of the of the, of the film. Exactly, yeah. They have a, you know, they have a landmark that's like, all right, we're going to use this. They do so. Um, Bond uh, jumps on top of an elevator to get to the bottom. He steals a taxi. Uh, and as he's chasing Mayday, who lands in a speedboat in the canal driven by... She, yeah, she lands in an, on another boat that just happens to be there and then yeah. transfers to the speedboat. That's right. Which is, uh, I don't know... And Which is again, driven by like, Max Zorin. Which, yes, why is Zorin compromising himself by picking someone up from a murder? This is bizarre because later on in the movie, General Gogol picks up someone, one of his agents, in America. Yeah. The... The head of Russian Secret Service is very confusing. This operational security is clearly not at their priority yeah. at this point. I do want to point to say, because I think this is just really funny, one of the snafus on the film set was apparently, uh, you know, all film productions have their trials and tribulations. One of the ones for the Eiffel Tower scene was that they were going to shoot two jumps from the Eiffel Tower. Um, so two stuntmen were going to do this very dangerous stunt, base jumping, very, you know, kind of really cool but once in a lifetime opportunity you don't get to do that very often right but uh, they actually got all the footage with one jump so they didn't need the second jump and the stuntman was absolutely not having that he wanted it so he jumped anyway and he got fired because uh the the film production did not like him endangering the cooperation of the city of paris yeah because obviously there's always there's always a risk when you base jump off the eiffel tower right luckily it worked out he was fine but you know if you don't have to do it you don't have to do it but i just thought it's kind of funny stunt men are going to stunt That's and they true. still don't have an oscar despite being in clearly insane yeah so, and shame daring and often the best parts of many movies um oh absolutely and this is you know this is one of those kind of cool showcase moments you know you can tell this is you you kind of it, it, it lacks a surprise a little bit you know you kind of know where it's going but it's still you you gotta look at it and go like okay that's someone did that that's pretty cool yeah but then it but then it's it's they do sacrifice at this point because then roger moore does this insane chase where she's floating away and he somehow keeps pace with her by stealing a car and driving and the car gets cut up more and more it loses its roof as it goes through a security barrier and then another car hits it and the back end just shaves off perfectly and so by the end of it he, he skids up and just the front half of the car which is a little bit ridiculous. It's kind of a, you know, I mean, it's, it's this is not, a, you know, a major failing per se, but I mean, we're again, we have her leaning into comedy. Yeah. Uh, which is kind of bizarre. It's, it's a strange one, I guess, in terms of the fact that Mayday and Zarin are not played for comedy at any point. They're very serious, and Mayday yeah. particularly is genuinely inscrutable in the film to a large degree. There is, yeah. Um, uh, so she's floating elegantly away, making her brilliant escape. Meanwhile, Bond is down doing Keystone Cops weirdness on the streets of Paris. So there's almost... So I guess I mean, maybe it's almost a, the acknowledgement of like that Roger Moore is 57 years old. Uh, right, and, yeah. you know, we, we can't really... You know, there has to be some leavening of that action. His, his, his pedigree is clearly not up there. So they're going to, you know, they're going to do their take their shot with some other things yeah and i think it's that uh, probably that clashing of tones is probably what people don't like the most about this film um because uh we'll get into it but um 
Zoran is responsible for probably one of the most heinous acts of violence uh, yes. late in the film, which does not really sit well, especially in a Roger Moore film, let alone in a Bond film. Um, but yeah, it's it's a very a goofy chase scene. Um, like you mentioned, the car is like just ripped apart, yet still somehow with its front wheel drive, it keeps going. Uh, there's a very cool stunt where... Um, Bond goes up a ramp over a double-decker bus, knocks off all the suitcases, and skids across the top perfectly before landing on the street and driving away. I thought that's a very cool shot because it's in one unbroken take. Um, mm. But, yeah, Bond eventually crashes into a, another uh, ship where there's a wedding. He crashes through the roof of the wedding. He lands on top of the full wedding cake as the bride and groom are approaching it. And then when he gets up, there is not a single dollop of frosting on his suit. The stuntman (laughs) clearly lands, knocks over the full cake, but Bond is, of course, his suit is immaculate. Uh, but, Somehow, yeah. But well, um, we'll say that's probably not the first wedding that James Bond has compromised one way or another. Oh no, yeah. <laughs> he, you know, he sheepishly hands the the bride the top of the cake, and uh, Matt Zorn and Mayday escape, and uh, some angry chefs corner Bond with their knives, and uh, he's rescued, of course, by M. But they say that he has to pay, or they had to pay six million dollars in damages because of it. So uh, it's it's nice to know that you know Bond's uh, public destruction is not go unwarranted in these movies. <laughs> He's still responsible he, for a lot of damage. He has his he has his reputation definitely. So this leads us into our next our next horse related element. Yep. Uh, or horse heavy section, which, as you point out, will not go anywhere particularly. Horses are not actually the main thing here. No. So we go to I'm I'm not sure where exactly. It's some really lavish palace. It looks like something like last year in Marienbad or something like just a ridiculously lavish gold plated mansion somewhere. Um. And this is where Zoran lives, and they are selling horses or doing a horse auction. So Bond shows up, and this is again like um, so we have Sir Godfrey Tibbet, played by Patrick McNee, who people may know well best as, as John Steed from the original The Avengers. That's right. Um, he's shown up in, in all, all over the place, but that's certainly his his best known role. And this, this is one of the bigger supporting parts, I think, for a Bond ally in the film. Yeah. He often has an ally, but this is. I, honestly, by far and away, that I can recall the most invested that we get to be with his, his ally. He really holds the screen with Moore for a long time. And uh, he is, of course, I believe, of higher rank than Bond, perhaps, or certainly no more uh, just as aristocratic, but he has to play Bond's butler, so they play a lot of comedy for that. Uh, he's a horse expert, uh, so he's that's his, his expertise. He's there to assist Bond, but they are... Both schooled in secret, uh, secret service stuff. They get their little bugger, debugger thing out to look for bugs. Yeah, and um, they we've we've already had Emma Peel, the female lead from the Avengers, in um, uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Now, that's true, yes, now, Diana Rigg. Now we have John Steed, the hero from the Avengers, playing what is essentially a bumbling sidekick. I guess that's sort of a sort of an in joke for Bond fans is that it's a, a dig at this other famous spy series. Um, but you know, it's all—it's Roger Moore. It's all in good fun. Um, what what I like is that they get to stay at Zoran's estate, and um, the room that they're staying in is bugged. And meanwhile, to keep up face, Bond is uh, constantly uh, belittling and uh, demanding orders out of uh, Patrick McNee um, until they find the bug. Then once they do, Bond produces a 
pre-recorded tape deck plays it next to the bug and it's a like pre-recorded arguments between the two and i wanted to like see the session of them sitting down to decide to record how many hours of this are there that they they took time to sit down and yeah script and have many hours committed to tape to just play while they have a chat on the balcony it's like could you not just have gone on the balcony or just yeah shuffled around and written stuff down it feels like there's a lot of other ways to go but you know it's james bond if you gotta go digital or whatever i guess right so we have i guess this is where he has his first real meetings with with uh with zarin and they feel each other out and uh, he's going as what sinjin smythe yeah james bond does not go as james bond for once in his in his career he's obviously getting a little bit too well known so he goes with honestly one of the most comically uh kind of upper class names you could imagine it and, sounds like and here's what's yeah what's crazy about it is that it's spelled saint john smith but it's pronounced Sinjin Smythe. It's v- yes. very uppity <laughs> British class, um, and and it's and they really lean into the name too. It says, "Oh, Mister Sinjin Smith, uh, at your service," uh, or Sinjin Smythe. Uh, um, but yeah, Bond. Uh, and, and this is, I think, a, a kind of a mistake that Bond makes in the scene is that he needs Zorin for the first time, and you know they're talking about Zorin's uh, love of horses, and I love I love the line that Zorin drops where he says, "I'm happiest in the saddle." Um, but then Bond asks if he's a fan of fly fishing, and it's like, okay, dude, you just saw a guy get killed with a fly fishing hook in the Eiffel Tower, like, the previous day. Why would you blow your cover that fast? It seems it's, like a... It's a good question. After they recorded 10 hours of arguments, a, to, yeah. you know, <clears throat> doesn't make a lot of sense, but, uh, this is, this is the Bond, uh, ethos. Um, we also meet for the first time our primary Bond girl here, Stacy right. Sutton. Uh, who is played by uh, Tanya, Tanya Roberts, Roberts yeah. who again is probably best known for television for Charlie's Angels. She was in the last season of that, where honestly they were kind of trying to rescue the show, as I recall. Yeah. So, um, but but anyhow, she, she's in episode. there. Yeah, uh, you're not missing much, honestly. <laughs> you know what? Honestly, I probably watched Charlie's Angels around the time when I kept seeing this show or kept seeing this movie. It was uh, similar reruns uh, of that would have been on TV at the same time. But, uh, yeah, so we have uh, our Bond girl who looks to be bought off by Zarn. He writes a large check for her, which leads to a fantastic uh, device, which is like an old check reader. Yeah. Um, but but can reproduce blank check, like uh, the imprint of a check, it can reproduce it perfectly. So Bond can tell what has been written despite there being no receipt written for it. It's pretty Which, nif- again, all of, <clears throat> yeah, all, all of this, of course, of being of... Uh, dubious import to the overall story structure. I guess this one at least is mentioned later. But um, Bond and uh, his his henchmen go and they have to explore. They explore the stables and they find out about the steroid injections, etc. Right. And then they have a bit of a punch up and they end up pre-packaging a couple of henchmen That's right. uh, on a conveyor belt, which is uh, yeah, it's pretty good. Honestly, I, I won't complain too much about that. Yeah, it's fun. It's, it's a good idea. I like that they're just it's a guy covered in a broken lid and zip ties are wrapped around his neck. He's just pushed unconscious down the line. Um, uh, yeah, and and then we have, of course, and, and maybe this is Bond's fault again, as you say, because he blew his cover really early on. 
um, almost immediately. Uh, Zarn makes him using state-of-the-art digital technology to scan his face, and he so he finds out that Bond is here. Even and Bond doesn't actually even know he's he's been made, despite the fly fishing remark, which would make you think he kind of doesn't care anyway. Right? Yeah. But, yeah um, he has a whole computer. It tells him his name. He's with the Secret Service for the uh, for Britain, and he's also has a license to kill. And yes, uh, wh- while he's in big letters. Yeah. While he's doing that, though, I will say that uh, Christopher Walken's face. When he's watching the results pop up on the computer screen, is is just classic walking. I mean, he's got oh, yeah. he's got some great reaction shots in this movie. And and again, he's just a great villain. Like he's just he is pleased to he's pleased to be bringing out someone like this who he gets to play with as part of his grand plan that we're not aware of yet. Yeah. <clears throat> so um, should we, we 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 jumped forward, but after the. Uh, after the dust up inside of the stable with the conveyor belt, Bond sneaks back into the mansion and he actually climbs into uh, Mayday's bed and waits for her in the bedroom after they've been informed that there's an intruder. Uh, and Zorn encourages Mayday to go forward with it to see if she can get any information. So then there's a very uh, uh, awkward, I guess is a bit of an understatement, uh, scene where um, Bond and Mayday are uh, making out in bed. Uh, what are your, what, Jack, I'm to throw this to you. What are your thoughts on this sequence? Very odd, yes. Yeah, um, yeah I, I don't know. James Bond is a. <laughs> I mean, I guess in one sense, it. it uh, when was the. There, she, Mayday's not the first black Bond girl, but. Um, no, there was she's Rosie Carver and Live and Let Die, for sure. Yeah, she's certainly the most prominently placed thus far, all the way into 1985, yeah. you know, to get that far up there. Uh, is this Bond's first interracial uh, thing? I don't recall. Um, but what I do, what I do enjoy about this is that, according to Roger Moore's own uh, biogra- autobiography, uh, he did not get on with Grace Jones, which I don't find difficult to imagine the slightest. Yeah. Um, I feel like very different worlds, very different uh, world views. Um, but also, according to Roger Moore, uh, Grace Jones kept a large black dildo in the bed for the entirety of this scene. Right. I'm guessing just just to let let him know who was in the saddle. Um, which I think is a really nice uh, interplay, you know. Oh man, Grace Jones should be in all of the Bond movies somehow. She just bring her back in, just do like Jaws. I mean, they even have like a, a they, what you say, a, well, a, a rescuing. That very funny you mentioned that she was supposed to be in uh, No Time to Die, but she walked off the set after she found out that the role was little more than a cameo. So um, I don't know what it was or what she was supposed to do, but. Uh, you know, they did her dirty by robbing the world of another great Grace Jones performance in a Bond film. Why would you Why would you bring Grace Jones onto your set and I know. Then not, not have her do something, it's a, anything? It's a shame. Well, yeah, so, so yeah, the sex scene here is, uh, obviously, in, in Bond fashion, it's just sort of a wink to the camera and cut away and everything's implied. But, yeah, very strange. Um, and definitely, I don't I mean, Bond knows he's not getting any information. He's just doing it because he's a sexist pig, basically. And and so he must know that Mayday's probably not into this either. So very weird dynamics on this. I can't imagine either of them had a very good time, but uh, that's, you know, you used to me for queen and country and so on and so forth, or for your own weird kinky kicks. Uh, business and pleasure mix in these films a lot, I imagine. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, um, meanwhile, um... 
Meanwhile, Godfrey Tippett, of course, uh, is then murdered the next day by Mayday. Yeah. And I feel I feel bad for him because, honestly, Bond really kind of compromised their cover. Yeah. So he has to go take the car into town and he gets, uh, I guess, strangled in the car wash by, by Mayday. She's very hands-on on the, oh, yeah. and what's, on the whole thing. What's crazy is that he... Um, Tibbet is driving their Rolls Royce and he's ordered by Bond to go wash the car uh, at the gate he sees Mayday and he turns his back on her to open uh, the gate and when he turns around all he can see is the Rolls Royce and there's an empty field and nobody else is around and he thinks that Mayday has gone off somewhere he does not think to check in the back seat where a giant African American woman is lying in wait to strangle him in a car wash and it's true, yeah, and it's not like it's even, as I recall, it's not even a very dark interior that she could even hope to mem- kind of blend in with. It's, uh, yeah, I feel like Grace Jones, she's like 5'10", and Grace Jones, so I think you're probably going to notice very her. very statuesque, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, hard to miss. I feel miss. like you're going to have a, a, a feeling she's there, but uh, I guess that's why Godfrey Tibbet is not, he's not a field agent usually. Yeah. So, uh, and that's, that's why, because he cannot tell if there's a other human being right behind him yeah. ever. So, meanwhile, well, so goes. In, in in the interim of uh, Tibbet's death, um, Bond is challenged to a horse race by Zorin. Um, Zorin has his own custom-made track, uh, where after he goes over a series of jumps, he signals to another uh, henchman who will use a button to uh, lower or extend the different gates for the horses to jump over. Uh, of course, why do they build this? Why do they build this? How? When they built it? I have no idea. But Bond, being Bond, he still actually manages to successfully maneuver uh, around all of these uh, booby traps. Um, and there's there's also not to mention that it not it's not just Bond and Zoran. There's about a dozen other guys on horses as well. And when they're not trying to trip Bond up on the jumps, they're also trying to beat him with their riding crops. But uh, no, he manages to almost get away. And had Tibbet not been killed, he would have gotten away. But um, Grace Jones returns with Tibbet's car. Uh, they throw Bond out into the car and push it into a lake. And Bond survives by uh, sucking in the uh, air that's in the tires of the Rolls Royce. Um, yes. I'm not sure is one- how well you could do that to survive, but uh, it is plausible. Well, it's it's that's more plausible than just prior to that where when the vehicle is fully submerged bond just opens the door oh oh yeah <laughs> which is uh yeah that uh, that's a, a well-known faux pas on the escape from a fully submerged car uh theory but um well i i guess i also want to mention because they're also introduced this we have two other kind of secondary villains oh, inter- or right. maybe ter- third year ter- tertiary a, yeah yeah there's just a lot of villains in this one and we have we have pan ho they're made it. We hang with made it, and we also have Jenny Flex, and I, and I just want to say Jenny Flex is maybe my favorite Bond girl name, because uh, of course I'm assuming it's yeah I'm assuming it's it's a play on genuflect, which is you know getting on your knees in a church, hmm. and of course why why wouldn't they get that in yeah so and who um, doesn't love a flexible Bond girl huh. Uh, absolutely so yeah so and they show up they don't really do and i don't think they even have a line honestly but they're they're there um they have a, they have so, a few lines actually the other one um uh pan ho um she she's the one who actually uh instigates the uh sinjin smythe uh because she greets oh, him as mr right. mr saint john smith and more goes uh sinjin smythe my dear and she's played by an actress named papillon susu who most people might know as the prostitute in the opening of the Vietnam sequence in Full Metal Jacket. 
Um, so, yes, indeed. Yeah. So, and then Jenny Flex, of course, is played by Alison Doody, who is, I think, um, maybe maybe the first actually Irish Bond girl. She's from Dublin. Uh, as an actress, you might know her from like Indiana Jones and Last Crusade and Taffin, which not only are you know kind of amusing eighties movies, but also pair her up with Sean Connery and Pierce Brosnan. So she's acted with all of like three of the Bonds at least. Yeah. Um, and an interesting thing I didn't realize is that she was only eighteen when this film was shot, which means that she is actually the youngest Bond girl in the entire franchise. And so you may that's... be right. If you Google Irish Bond girl, Alison Duty's the uh, only name I'm hitting. So yeah, I, I, I think that's I think that's probably a lot of Irish American ones. I think or at least you know two or three of those. Yeah. In fact, I think I think Stacey Sutton, I think Tanya Roberts is Irish American at least partially. So um, but yeah, no, we're uh, actual Irish Bond girl. But uh, she she shows up briefly in the in the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, Taffin. I just want to note for anyone who has not seen Taffin, you should see it. It's an '80s Irish actor movie which is the most ridiculous prospect for a film you could imagine it has Pierce Brosnan just in a small Irish village that for some reason there's a bad guy with a bunch of henchmen they send after him it makes no sense it's absolutely ridiculous but also notable that Pierce Brosnan wears I think at all times in that film at least three jackets on top of each other (laughs) uh, which is an incredible style like there's a denim jacket and a sports jacket and like some other jacket underneath um remarkable <laughs> there's i've been so, meaning to watch taffin i've seen one clip it's probably the most famous clip from taffin where um brazen goes what goes on in this town is none of your business and uh she says uh, the gal says uh, well if i'm living here it is and then he says well maybe you shouldn't be living here and he screams for like 10 <laughs> seconds on that last line it's a lot of drama. So yeah, so I've been me. I will check out Taff, and I promise you, I, I will assure you, it's not a good movie, but it is very entertaining. I'll I'll so, take it. You know, I'll take yeah, it. yeah. I mean, and certainly of a rare breed. Uh, Ireland did not produce a lot of action movies now or then. Yeah, probably more now, I guess. And uh, still, I can't think of any. But anyhow, uh, you know, other than Fatal Deviation, which is the ultimate Irish action film and Ireland's only martial arts film. Oh, which is any good? Oh my god! Oh, it's um, <laughs> you need to see it. It's literally it's like uh, if Neil Breen was a martial artist from like rural Ireland. Uh, very very powerful film. Um, right. that ends with like a kumite scene like in Bloodsport but for some reason all the crowd start saying fatal deviation fatal deviation because that's the name of the movie even though it has nothing to do with anything else in the film hmm. uh, really incredible yeah um, highly recommended if you can find a copy it's floating around the internet it's one of the, it's like mystery science theater they actually they should bring that in there I don't know if they have but anyhow we, we wander afield into the into the rarefied uh, subject of Irish action movies uh, let's we'll, we'll we'll navigate back to uh, the the slightly bigger field of Bond action movies. Yeah. So I think after the attempted murder of Bond, we've already mentioned uh, several things. This is where uh, Zoran meets Gogol. Um, then I guess this is where the remainder of the film really just sort of takes place, uh, either up in the air in Silicon Valley or in San Francisco. So this is uh, sort of where the final stage of all of our action takes place. But there's still quite a large chunk of running time left. Um, uh, it is. It's an oddly long film. Yeah, like it's it's two hours eleven minutes long, and I, I don't know if I felt it so much, but certainly it feels like there's a lot of empty space in in between parts here. I do feel or, a lot of the set pieces do run on for a long time. The 
upcoming fire truck chase uh to be honest kind of feels interminable to me um but yeah so we we get to san francisco and i i don't really not that it matters but the staging of the next sequences um bond basically tracks down stacy sutton because he has the check um for her five million dollar buy-off he's she's living at her childhood home which is pretty much uh unfurnished out in the middle of uh northern california um, she's attacked by a bunch of goons, um, but Bond fights them off with a shotgun loaded with rock salt um, and actually, uh, you know, introduces himself as an ally to her. Um, I, I, I think that's where we are in the movie, if I'm not uh, mistaken. That's, that sounds right. Sounds about yes. right, yeah. And, and there's a little bit of, I mean, if Bond again, makes it feels quiche. more... Yeah, it, feel, it feels a little bit more like there, there could be a little bit more interest here because Bond is feeling her out. He's not sure if she has been bought out by Zarin or, you know, and it turns out, of course, that she's actually, she's a victim of Zarin too when she was trying to take the, she was trying to buy out the shares just to mm-hmm. redeem her father's memory. It wasn't like a crass financial thing, although it's still kind of a crass financial thing in one sense or another, but so be it. Um, so, you know, there's kind of a tension there of, you know, is she isn't she you know what's her her character but honestly the film doesn't really doesn't really do anything with it she's clearly the bond girl yeah and she's a she's a good person she's kind of uh like tiny roberts is just sort of used for uh there's not really any intrigue there whatsoever uh frank not i mean it's not like she could introduce it it's just not in the character she's just sort of i I feel like she spends the entire film hanging from things she's Um, yeah she's very much i mean the first time we see her she's at zorn's estate she's very i noted she's like very like kind of mysterious um in her first appearance and it's it's very brief but she's really just sort of a a whiner when like when the going gets tough she's just like oh james and uh it's it's kind of like the um the tiffany case effect in diamonds are forever where we're introduced to what is um could be a capable bond girl who stands alongside the bond but by the end of the film she's just reduced to um just a a, unfortunately just a, a squealing mess of a person um, so yes. yeah, her her arc is not handled that well yet, you know. But it's it's like you mentioned, she is the Bond girl, so we're basically stuck with her for the rest of the film. Um, yeah, and she's and she's a geologist by trade, which is how of, they of course, yeah, bring bring her into the storyline that she's able to explain the the daft plot that Zarn is hatching, or she's able to catch on to it. Yeah, there's yeah. So, so through here we have he she fights him off and he makes a quiche for her. That's and they, right. They have a quiche, and he at this point he's uh, I believe still claiming he's he's a newspaper man. And That's that he's, right. You know, Financial Times uh, investigator yeah. James Stock is uh, James, the yeah. name here. They put in they put in all of the all of the aliases in this movie. Yeah. Like all the times that James Bond never thought to bother making up a name yeah. elsewhere. Suddenly he's doing it all here. Uh, and then we move out from here. Do we do we go to to our airship and Zarin's deal? I, I feel they're around this, That's, this section. Yeah, it might be just right before it, but yeah, so thinking Bond is dead, Zorin moves on with his plan. He's up in his one of his two blimps. Uh, where he's uh, explaining his deal to take over Silicon Valley. Um, he has a, a, a confidential deal that he wants to arrange with um, his supporters. Uh, one guy is completely opposed to the idea, so uh, Zorn kicks him out of the boardroom. Um, Mayday escorts him to another part of the airship where she puts him on a set of stairs, which turns into a slide leading out to a trap door and ejects the poor bastard out of the airship. 
which cut to walk-in in the boardroom uh, saying, anybody else want to drop out? Nah, and these people not. Which is funny here because not only do they know that he just murdered a guy, but you would think that when the meeting's over, they would probably expect to like see him waiting in the lobby of the airship or they would run into him again. Yeah. But it's never mentioned that he kills it's, a businessman. It's true. I don't like them, you know, oh no, he's in the other end of the airship. Yeah. Like, there's only so many places in one of those generally you can be. But anyhow, yes, he so so it's here. I guess it's revealed that he has a plan to flood Silicon Valley, um, which we right. later find out is through a combination of explosives and seismic plates and flooding. Which uh, flooding, yeah. So which which is interesting because I feel like this. I don't remember the exact plot of Black Hat, but I feel like there was a lot of overlap with this. Very different films, otherwise. Uh, but you know plans mm-hmm. to flood prime real estate or whatever in this case uh, but Zarn has the idea of course he's going to become the, the main microchip dude after in this so we, we bounce around a lot at this point because then we go back there's um, James Bond is doing he actually does some investigation in this film well, which is rare yeah. well real, real quick we have that the line of the movie um, oh, after yes. the dropout scene where uh, they approach San Francisco and they're viewing out to the Golden Gate Bridge and Mayday says what have you and then Zorin goes to a kill and he gives that head nod like yeah that's the good shit <laughs> yeah they're gonna that, and Mayday is completely impassive not particularly impressed by it you know mm-hmm. but uh, yeah it's, it's the Golden Gate Bridge so you know <laughs> it's, it's, so it's a view to we, a kill we, 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 Sure, works for me. And not, not like, not like it's a. I mean, really, that title only makes sense in the original short story about a sniper. It's really yes. It would be like a view to kill for, makes more sense. But uh, I guess they had to adhere to Fleming's text, you know. Uh, yeah, it's not even like. I mean, he's going to create a lake view by flooding, mm-hmm. you know, flooding Silicon Valley. They didn't know, and it doesn't really work. But whatever, it's good. Duran Duran ran with it. It's all good. Oh yeah. So um, so we bounce around a little bit here. Uh, Bond does actually some real investigation work, kind kind of real by his standards, and starts fee. There's there's a bit of intrigue here because there's a secondary insertion squad, some Russian agents, because I guess the Russians are trying to figure out what Zarin is doing as well. Right. Um. And so Bond actually manages to cover his own espionage because another guy gets caught. And they find out they're pumping seawater through the pipes, and this turns out to be part of a plan because they're they're going to be using oil infrastructure to flood water in to help them flood it. Honestly, I don't remember the exact specifics of this. Everything goes boom, and Silicon Valley floods. Yeah, that's basically what it boils they're, down to. So yeah, Zorn has like a he has an oil derrick that he's con- using to control by pumping seawater into these various faults and mines underneath Silicon Valley. Basically, he wants to fill the San Andreas Fault with water so that it becomes unstable, and then he wants to detonate a central part of it so that it'll essentially eradicate all of the Earth above it, uh, if uh, something like that. Uh, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. It's very, very complex, but yeah. Bond investigates the oil derrick, um, and then actually there's another agent there who gets captured and killed by Zorin and his men. Uh, and then it's here, which is one of the most perplexing um, subplots to this film, is where Bond runs into another uh, a Russian female agent who he had a former fling with. And there's a t- whole 10-minute sequence where he spends time with her in a hot tub, um, which I, fr- I forget about every time I watch it, even though there's Bond puts on the music. And is, as she's sitting in the hot tub jets, she says, the bubbles tickle my Tchaikovsky. 
um, which another memorable line <laughs> from the film. But uh, yeah, classic. Yeah, apparently this was rumor has it this was actually supposed to be Barbara Bach returning from the Spy Who Loved Me to add a, a bit of connection. But um, she apparently uh, read the script and was like, uh, "No thanks." So it's this uh, <laughs> nondescript uh, Russian agent who steals the wrong tape and returns it to General Gogol, which is another. Uh, uh, anyways. Which Gogol comes to collect her again, yeah. as I mentioned earlier, which, again, seems highly unlikely yeah. that he would be able to enter the United States and then show up for things, but so be it. Yeah, it's like um, M picking up Bond from City Hall. <laughs> that's how that's how ludicrous it is. It's like all, all the secret agent parents picking up their kids from school. Yeah. <laughs> it's free. Very weird. Uh, but anyhow, Bond outfoxes him, yes, and he gets a tape uh, and switches it out. Um, that's Paula Ivanova is the name. It's not. I don't think that's even a even a pun, honestly. So that's kind of disappointing. It's just generic Russian. No. Um, and yes, and that's that's it. She disappears. And nothing. Nothing more for her for in the movie. Um, yeah. Anyways. Uh, wow. We have quite a bit. There's an. Uh, there's another. <laughs> Good lord. There's another CIA agent introduced, uh, Agent Lee. He meets Bond at a uh, crab market uh, where the code to meet him is, do you have any soft shell crab? Which seems like an insane code to ask somebody at a fish market where they likely would have soft shell crab. Um, So I don't know how many poor men uh, Agent Lee thinks he's meeting before he actually meets the real James Bond. Um, But uh, they get together and they actually team up with Stacey Sutton to investigate... Um, Zorin's dealings for um, I'm guessing our land permits in uh, City Hall um, so they break into City Hall and uh, Zorin ambushes them there he kills the uh, guy who gives who's been giving Zorin all the permits and then they lock Bond and Sutton into an elevator and set the building on fire um, in another like as psychopathic as Zorin is he keeps like he doesn't want to get his hands dirty with Bond directly. No, like he I, just wants you know wants to so let Bond reason. dance into the fire to his death. Oh, that's, it's true. Yeah. So again and again, of course, they escape, and it the, and leads us from a honestly not a brilliantly realized special effect. They kind of have like a, I think they do with like you know superimposition of fire on the top of San Francisco City Hall or whatever. It's not a very uh, involving sequence, but they escape down. Uh, I, I kind of love this scene because Roger Moore carries again Sutton out because like again she's hanging off stuff she's hanging off the elevator oh, she's hanging yeah. off this she's hanging off la- she's just she spends a whole movie basically just battling gravity that's her <laughs> main enemy in this entire thing and James Bond is, is there to help her yeah um, and he comes it comes down from this and and they call nine one one the guy before Zarn killed him called nine one one because Zarn told him to. Uh, and didn't realize he was actually calling 911 to report his own murder in a twist, and then Zarin shoots him. Uh, so the police are responding to a murder call. Mm-hmm. The building's on fire, and Bond just shows up at the base of it to a police officer and just kind of figures there won't be a problem. <laughs> and the police obviously want to talk to him a little bit. They have they have some questions. You're like, so Bond ste- so yeah, Bond does what anyone would do, which is steal a fire engine. Right. And uh, so yeah, this leads to an extended chase scene where there's police cars chasing a fire truck through San Francisco. Lee- it's a very Blues Brother kind of a, a thing here. Yeah, it's, it's just a lot of, again, Keystone Cops kind of silly crash bang cars. It's a, go up yeah. a raising bridge. Who's who's the name of that actor who's in a lot of uh, De Palma films? He's got a he's in Die Hard too. Dennis Franz. He's the De- the cop yeah. is like got a very thick Chicago accent. Like Dennis, he's very much like a Dennis Franz surrogate. Um, but uh, he's he's the one leading all these police after Bond. 
Um, anyways, Bond manages to escape over a raised bridge. A bunch of the car, uh, cop cars crash into the raised bridge, or in the case of one of them, uh, is caught hanging off at the top of it before it eventually slides down. And then here's what's crazy to me, is that uh, there's all these smashed cop cars, and the, the chief of police, the Dennis Franz guy, is saying that, all right, all, this, all these damaged cars are coming out of your paychecks. And I'm like, um... <laughs> they're using their work vehicles to try to apprehend a suspect. I don't think that they would should be liable for the damage to the police cars. Does it, doesn't make a lot of sense. And then the counterweight of the bridge comes down and crushes his car, thus putting him on the line yeah, for an expense for a car being destroyed yeah. too. But his car is parked in the middle of the road, which means you wonder how the counterweight functions that it comes down in the middle of the road oh, yeah. of the bridge any it's linking to. Poor person get crushed if they're just hanging out in the wrong spot. Extremely dangerous setup, honestly. Yeah. It's mad. No, no wonder car chases in, in San Francisco are so infamous because clearly everyone's just dodging, constantly trying not to die from their poorly constructed bridges. <laughs> this, this is clearly what's going on, and, and, and we'll make a film about that at some point. Yeah. <laughs> captured but anyhow uh, so yeah so we have our honestly quite lengthy not very uh enervating uh what we say fire truck race it again involves bond at some point swinging around on the bridge roger Moore, 57 year old roger Moore, swinging around on a on an unlocked ladder right swinging around over traffic it's like this is a jackie chan sequence but you know jackie chan was you know a prime stunt performer uh this is just all bad kind of intercutting and doubling him out and everything it's it's very it's a very silly sequence yeah and again they try they they inject a little bit of humor with the police cars but like let's say i think this one could just have been caught literally keystone cops in this case yeah you know when we we have a one with the thing runs over two hours it's like maybe you could have dropped a few of these things it's true, yeah. Um, so, so where do we where do we go next? Well, after we, that, so uh, gotta be close to the, we do, we are we stuff. are believe it or not, audience. I know this might run as one of our longest ups yet, but we do get close to the finale here, which uh, takes place in a largely in an un- underground mine and then on a blimp. So Bond and Sutton, uh, they do track down the uh, construction mine where Zorn's um, plot has basically been taking place. Uh, they grab some jumpsuits, sneak aboard in a uh, a mine cart that's filled with dynamite. Um, and then uh, they're of course discovered. Um, they're separated. Sutton manages to escape back onto the Earth, and Bond is uh, he he's running away from Jenny Flex and Mayday. Uh, at this point, Zoran starts flooding in the mines, um, and for people who do not get flooded, he gets a machine gun. And then he and Patrick Bachow just uh, each grab a machine gun and just start mowing down innocent construction workers so that there are no witnesses for his devious plot. Um, yeah, this is this is a crazy insane. scene. Yeah, and and I lo- I think it's actually this is definitely one of the things that elevates the film for me that there is, you know, it's a real kind of in the context of the films that surround it, and I guess honestly. We're seeing the sea shift, sea shift, I think, because we're going to go into the Dalton era, which was yeah. very different and darker. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's like it really harps on the cruelty here. This feels much more intense than pretty much anything that really happened in, in earlier films. Yeah. I mean, there's a few maybe in Honor, Majesty, Secret Service intense moments. But, yeah, it's they really they really lean into it. And Roger Moore apparently did not like this. Yeah, I mean, I chalk it up to uh, director John Glenn. I mean, he's responsible for some of the darker moments in his first film, For Your Eyes Only. And, uh, you know, Octopus is a very goofy film, but it's about stopping a nuclear bomb from blowing up in the middle of a circus and slaughtering children. 
Um, so luckily that one gets saved. Um, but yeah, he's got he brings a, a harder edge to his films that I don't think a lot of people really uh, either recognize or appreciate. So, um, and I think yeah. with with more, it's it's certainly a different case with Dalton, where Dalton's like a Bond built for this kind of sequence. Like I, as I was watching the film, I was sort of imagining what it would be like if this were Dalton's first movie, and it would be, um, you know, all the pretty much uh, the goofiness would be evaporated almost immediately. Yes. It would be very hard and serious. Um, but yeah, so more kind of uh, clashes with that sensibility, and there's you know yeah, it's 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 an inter- yeah it's, it's it is an interesting kind of a sequence in that context. It feels it feels like we're we're changing up, um, and also I, I feel like is I, we talk about like the PG thirteen movement, and obviously that wouldn't hit for a while. But right. it, this it reminds me a lot of the Marvel movies as well in oh, terms yeah. of just this vast body count. But with no, there's no real consequence to it, so it's it's intensely violent in the concept that it's just shot upon shot of just unmitigated like carnage, right? And yet it's kind of like a side note to just two men facing off against each other, like two important men facing off against each other, right? So yeah, it's an an interesting kind of. I feel like in a way it almost it points the way forward to where Hollywood was going, mm-hmm. and maybe Roger Moore was actually kind of on a point with that. As much as I think it does distinguish and elevate this specific film, we would get to a point in these films where you know in the larger Hollywood action mood where there just were a lot of films that just had just casual mass slaughter of innocence sort of and just side you know these guys here and there i mean they've had these kind of sequences a bit in previous bond films but they were always henchmen they were aligned with the bad guy right. these are just some poor construction workers who showed up to their job in yeah. the day even the uh, the foreman even bakes to zoran saying hey these men are loyal to you and zoran just says ah fuck you and uh, kills him he doesn't say fuck you yeah. but you know it's it's basically no, the same, swear, same swearing was a bridge too far yeah no 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 that that would be that's unsuitable for children yeah mowing everyone down with machine guns and guys getting electrocuted as electric, like wires oh, yeah. fall into water. That's fine. That's all okay. Yeah. But this brings us then to uh, Mayday. Uh, Mayday turns coat. She changes. Exactly. Because yeah. uh, Zarn's psychosis is so pronounced that he honestly endangers her. He doesn't care. He left her to um, die, and uh, she f- honestly feels betrayed, which actually I think this is... This, this whole sequence here really works through me up through her her sacrifice i really like this where you know she she you know it's it's you know it's one thing to have like the villain turn like jaws turns because they're gonna kill his girlfriend but sure with mayday there's like a real clear sense of betrayal and uh, i love just the physicality of her lifting both the bomb and bond out of the bottom of the <laughs> mine shaft and then transporting it on the mine cart um but yeah, she and, uh, and definitely in my young mind that that vision of Grace Jones pumping the handcart. Uh, uh, that's yeah, that's that's cinema, that's Kino right there. <laughs> that that is just so they have to so they put the bomb. The, basically, part of the mine has been flooded, and there's uh, like a what looked like to be a thousand rounds of TNT in bags with a limpet mine placed in the middle of it, which will certainly cause a huge explosion in any part of the world um but yeah they get the bomb the detonation device the giant bomb out of there and they're transporting on a mine they try to push it out but the handbrake is broken so mayday has to ride the mine and hold the handbrake open and there's just this great shot in this great sequence of zorn is up in his blimp staring at the mine and out from the mine comes riding mayday on the on the 
the minecart and she's holding the broken handle and she like gives this defiant yell to Zorin before she blows up and just the the betrayed look on Zorin's face is amazing. This is a really good sequence and and I I you know I I do not say that lightly. I think you know I think a lot of people who call this Bond film the worst uh quite frankly they're they're wrong cuz there's some there's some good stuff here. Yeah, I I don't understand. There's clearly for and you know there's plenty of failings here. The the movie definitely sags in places. The action sequences a lot of Roger Moore can't really inject himself They're into them kind of cut around well, him and his stunt yeah double. yeah certainly but uh, yeah i mean it's, this is a zarn and mayday show and they are a better pairing than anything that they've come up with in surrounding film or you know the several of the films prior to this you know this is yeah. like honestly zarn and mayday are top tier bond villains and there's something really interesting as you say about their the the betrayal which is i've seen some people complaining about it like they you know complain about Jaws changing size, but it, it this is a much more interesting dynamic, and it makes sense. The Jaws one feels like they were just Jaws was a beloved character, right? And they just wanted to they wanted to make him more marketable. So there's this goofy, really atonal shift in in his in his character, right? Mayday isn't Mayday doesn't become like a good person. She just realized at a certain point that you know Bond is probably the most likely person to be able to kill Zarin, and she's not going to be able to, so she has to take the hit and um, you know it's a final act of defiance because she's you know she's with Zorn but she's feels very much like her own person in that sense you know that she she resists any kind of controlling influence yeah she's not so, just yeah, a, a mindless thug she's you know a real yeah. person so yeah I, I think that's a definitely this is really great and I do think again going back to the bond like the the inescapable bondness of it that uh, Max Zorn is about to commit Honestly, it's just a crime against humanity on a huge scale. He already has machine gun down a bunch of people, but he is about to create a geographic catastrophe. Right. Um, the likes of which has never been seen before. So he decides to escape in a hot air balloon, effectively in a Zeppelin, which is, I don't know what the top speed of those are, but it's not that fast. I don't, and I would yeah. imagine Zeppelins are <laughs> fairly easy to track. <laughs> I don't know, not only the speed of it, I don't know how quiet those things can operate because Bond emerges from the mind after Mayday's sacrifice. He sees Stacy Sutton in the distance running after him. Zorin manages to sneak up an entire blimp behind her so that he can grab her from the open door <laughs> of the blimp and fly away with her. Um, fortunately, Bond's able to catch up and hang on to the mooring rope. Uh, where, you know, they there's take always him, a mooring rope. There's always a mooring rope and Bond's you know climbing up it as they're taking him through a ride. Now, here's the thing. They decide to, and this is where the climax of the film ultimately ends, is where they decide to take it to the Golden Gate Bridge, hoping, I guess, to brush Bond off um, by, you know, hitting the mooring rope against the bridge. But, you know, there's a horrible chance that that could get snagged and caught, which is exactly what happens. Exactly what happens, yep. Roger Moore is 57 years old. Just hang out over the bay for about an hour, and his arms will get tired. There's no way he can <laughs> climb up that. Just stay in the air. But uh, unfortunately, they go with the first plan, and uh, there's a pretty, you know, pretty pretty nifty-looking visual climax, I'd say, on top of the uh, the Golden Gate Bridge on one of the, uh, the high swoops of the cables. Um, there's, uh, you know, Christopher Walken, Zoran jumps out with an axe, and he's swinging it at Bond, and there's a pretty good fight scene between them. Um, Vor this is where Zoran dies. He, you know, Bond gets the upper hand and manages to knock him off. Um, so he plunges into the depths below. 
uh, and then meanwhile, uh, Scarpine and the mad Dr. Mortner are still on the airship um, where they have a safe, and inside of that safe is another set of dynamite sticks taped together at the ready. Um, so they light that, I guess, with proper cartoon villainy. Exactly. I guess they light it with the intention of just throwing it at Bond, but uh, Bond manages to um, cut the cable loose that's holding them, which causes their airship to rock. They tumble back and explode, and then Bond and Sutton are safe. Um, pretty, uh, oh. yeah, pretty exciting. What do Happy you, days. What do, you, what do you think of this climax? I like the little giggle that uh, Zoran lets out before he falls to his death, which is... That, again, yes, is... And it just escalates that, that Zoran's just... He's more interesting. He's, he's genuinely... Like, so many Bond villains are power-hungry and mega-maniacal, etc., but Zoran genuinely is unhinged, mm-hmm. um... And kind of you know goes with the flow a little bit. Yeah, the the it has a very Hitchcock kind of sense. I guess it's a very kind of a you know kind of a a spectacle chase. Yeah. You know on on recognizable landmarks. It's you know I mean if I had to pick a fight between Christopher Walken and Roger Moore, I feel like Walken probably handle himself. He's a wiry fella. Yeah. <laughs> but you know yeah. so so it goes. But yeah, it's 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 I do maybe feel a little bit that. Uh, yeah, I don't know if they could do it more really than you know the Golden Gate Bridge fits in with the with the aesthetic of the film. But I feel like Zarin deserved a, a a meatier death than just falling a lot and then landing in water. Yeah, you know, it's it. And maybe could have could have gone for somewhere like maybe the dynamite should have been for him. Even yeah. maybe he should have exploded. They should have tucked dynamite in his shirt and he could have fallen and exploded halfway down. Oh yeah, if anything, you know? yeah, Scarpine should have been the one with the axe who falls to his death and Zorn could have yeah. flown away thinking he was safe but Bond chucked the dynamite in last minute and he, he gets hoisted by his own petard in the airship um, see we just we just made the movie even better yeah I mean you know it's 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 uh, we're helping yeah we're helping so Bond fans we will we'll take our checks in the mill um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And one thing I do, I want to point out. Okay, so we, we I, I meant, to, I meant to bring this up at the time, but I'm just going to backpedal just a little bit oh, because no, go ahead. this is genuinely one of my favorite things in any James Bond movie. Okay, let's, and if anyone asks me why I like this movie, I am going to bring this up, which is okay. We mentioned that uh, Stacy Sutton is in her giant palatial mansion with no furniture somewhere in Northern California, and Mr. Bond breaks into her apartment or into into her home, and he breaks into her home with. A credit card Ash. he uses to open the window, which we all know, okay, old school windows, you could use a flexible credit card to stick in over the, the jam. You can, you can Jimmy, open doors and windows with it. Right. It's illegal, folks. Don't do it, but you can. Um, but this is not just a regular credit card. It's electronically. It has lights on it, and it electronically opens windows. But not only that, also it's a sharper image credit card, yeah. which ties it in with... Uh, maybe the most eighties business model in the world, like the just the the store of ridiculous garbage no one needs, you know, which now is even tied in. I mean, Donald Trump is, I mean, was you know the ideal sharper image spokesman, uh, and you know now, which you know I think says a lot about our present day political realities. Yeah. But I just I love that. It's like it's it would just be a credit card to Jimmy open a window, but instead it's an electronic credit card-like item. (laughs) (laughs) And then also, and just the sharper image thing just seals it beautifully for me because that is exactly like the business ethos of that shop. Yeah. (laughs) Just like, you think it's one thing, 
but it's not. It's something else, and neither of these things work very well or are particularly useful or you would ever know who to give them to. Um, yeah, need to break so, into a handcrafted, old-fashioned wooden window, have our new sharper, elect- <laughs> <laughs> sharper image electronic credit card. What is the electronic element doing? I just, I bet it's a magnet, probably. Who knows? But I just, that is my favorite James Bond gadget. That is just... It's one of the most willfully stupid things I've ever seen, and I love it. Yeah. So I just I didn't want to let that pass by. No, in a I'm, movie I'm with, glad honestly, you. Uh, I'm glad you brought yeah, it. Yeah. In a movie with you know a couple of really solid gadgets, because apparently I didn't realize the Zeppelin was was blimps were experiencing a bit of a renaissance in America at the time too. Mm-hmm. So they were kind of cashing in on the blimp craze. Yeah. Um, which would explain why Zarn's mode of escape is on the slowest object that can remain in the air. Um, yeah. Great plan. There's, but anyhow. There's the blimp craze, and now the, the blimp is endorned with the name Zorin on the side of it. But, um, yeah, the, the credit card is a good one. And we, we didn't even mention, so, and this ties back to the ending of the film. After they've saved the day, Bond is in Stacy's house, you know, having a nice shower. Uh, everything is well in MI6M commands Q to track down where Bond is. Uh, in the early in the beginning of the movie, when we first meet Q, he's showing us his latest device, which is supposed to be a high-tech stealth droid, but it's really just a very clunky-looking remote-controlled dog car with a giant camera it, lens. There's nothing yes, that, like that emits a high-pitched whine as it moves for extra stealth. Absolutely nothing discreet about it. But um, anyways, uh, Q smuggles. I imagine that could into, easily, yeah, could easily be defeated by like a step over a door or something like. Yeah. Yeah. Can't get behind doors, but yeah. Anyways, Q smuggles it into Sutton's house where she and Bond are having a shower. Uh, Q is spying on them in the shower, and then this is the very last thing Roger Moore does in a Bond film. He throws in the towel as he throws the towel onto the spy robot so it can't peek, and that's the end of our movie. Roll credits. A- Duran Duran again. View to a kill. That's it. The at the end of an era. End of the an end era. Of the Roger Moore era. A very a very speckled, checkered era. But honestly, I think I think we're both in agreement that even if the movies don't always work so great there there's something kind of lovable about them yeah well i mean any uh, any thoughts on the uh, the film or the more era yeah I, th- I mean i think we i think we've covered it all like think honestly we, yeah. i think just again i would just say i feel like i am i am genuinely surprised that this movie has the worst critical rating out of all of them and maybe i and i get maybe it was just part of the time yeah. that it came out but you know i feel like you know, reevaluation. Maybe I mean probably people aren't particularly keen to reevaluate. You know, eighties James Bond or early eighties Roger Moore or James Bond. Yeah. But this is definitely of the Moore films. This is on the the upper tier. This is definitely one of he he ended it on one of his better or more interesting films. I would say it's so. One of those films yeah. That, yeah, it's one of those films that I mean, like honestly. There, there's a lot wrong with it, no question. But there, where it succeeds. Uh, particularly Zarn and Mayday and their chemistry and their their dynamics um, are really just so much more memorable and interesting. They really they they pull up a lot of the slack from everything else in this movie. Yeah, I would say um, yeah, I would say you know Spy Who Loved Me is probably his best. Um, I really like uh, I really like For Your Eyes Only, and then mm-hmm. this one is uh, almost. I mean, just with another one that's kind of not really favored and considered the worst is uh, Moonraker but I mean I really enjoy 
a view to a kill in Moonraker is probably like three and four tied for my Roger Moore bonds. So I think uh, I could, you know, pop this on and watch it. And I think there's a lot of strong elements. It's got a great, it's got a great song. It's got a great villain. It's got a, got a great henchman. There's a, you know, it's a great sense of fun. I I uh, I have a good time with this one. And this was, you know, like I mentioned, this was my strongest watch of it yet. So I really, I really am all in for a view to a kill. Definitely there one of the go. best. Yeah, I, I would agree. This is, is this is a good good end. Yeah. Uh, strangely, they they managed to hit some find some grace notes that we were unexpected here. Indeed. Um, I guess it helps. They they. I mean, I think Christopher Walken is the first Oscar winning or Oscar nominated James Bond villain. Oh yeah, um, he he won so, for uh, Deer Hunter in 1979. So yeah, that might be true. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was. Pulling it, I'm sure he just he just looked like he was having a good time. Honestly, I hope he did. I don't want to find out that Christopher Walken didn't have a great time or he just did it for the money. Yeah. So I hope they paid him well too. But anyhow, I hope so yeah, I'm sure. I wonder, you know, how he feels about the film or um or his his performance because it's one of the things. I mean, I don't really hear Christopher Walken give interviews or what he thinks of his work, but um because he's kind of he's kind of just a, an actor who's he, he, there's a very sort of. I don't want to call it like the Jeff Goldblum effect because I think Walken did it first, where he's kind of very self-aware with what he does now, and he's just he's all goofy ticks and mannerisms, and vo- and yeah. the voice is very much a part of his thing. But yeah, I th- yeah there was a time where he was great. Yeah, yeah, and he definitely. I mean, I think he went broad for a period here. I mean, Zarin led into you know. I mean, he did King of New York with Abel Ferreira, which is oh, fantastic, a, so much fun. But like Walken is excellent film. <laughs> oh man, he's uh, he's amped up to eleven. On you could almost make it an honorary sequel. It's, <laughs> in terms of just yeah. a crazy dude. That that's but, a great uh, movie. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah. There's. Just guys, don't believe the hype. You know this. This is definitely, or rather, the hate. Uh, don't believe the hate. The hate. Don't. Yeah. Don't believe the hate. This is. Uh, this is definitely a, a rewarding Bond film, despite like de- you know the action sequences maybe don't deliver, but there's enough happening around them that you know you you won't miss it too much. Exactly. Shall we? Uh. Well, I mean, wow, we're uh getting pretty long there. Shall we run some numbers? Okay, yeah, we, we this one is is interesting, honestly, um, because James Bond barely kills anyone in this movie. It's a strangely uh, demure performance. For Probably, him. yeah, to, a, to offset yeah. the balance of how many people exactly. Walken kills. In in and I'm guessing this film probably is the highest body count of any Bond film up until this point, and probably I'm not sure if even some of the later ones could compare with it after the the Zarin gun down at the end. Yeah. So uh, James Bond only kills five people that I could count here. All right. Um. Let's so he kills and 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 four of them are airborne at the time. Hmm. Uh, I guess I guess all of them if you count Zarin being up in the the Golden Gate Bridge. But yeah, the pre-credit sequence he does a smoke flare into a helicopter and causes them to crash he then does the dynamite and the zeppelin and between those he kicks Zarin off that's it and yeah ever there's there's a lot of death in this film but mr mr bond is not not in charge of it he's not presiding over it that's fair what we do have though is roger moore's uh most successful sexy time film oh there you go um so he managed to he managed to bed four different women in this film which uh, matches him. We now have three James Bond movies that have four separate uh, pairings. 
uh, which is a lot to cram into a two-hour movie, honestly. That's true. It's, it's, it's very busy. It's like Seinfeld levels of, of getting around. <laughs> um, but uh, the ironically, the other two movies I did that are from Russia with Love and Never Say Never Again is they're two Connery vehicles. So finally Bond, Roger Moore, gets himself gets himself in there. Nice. Um, Good on you, so, Roger. And, and with his final film, I'm, I'm looking at the totals, with his final film, that draws Roger Moore equal to Connery overall. They both bed 19 women nice. throughout, their, throughout their, their tenure. And I will add, Roger Moore kills more people oh. um, than, than Roger Moore, or than, yeah, than Sean Connery. Or anyone so, so far, So yeah. Moore got, yeah, yeah, so, so Sean Connery managed 74 kills on screen that I counted uh, including Never Say Never Again mm-hmm. uh, which which doesn't have a very high body count either honestly uh, if I recall yeah, maybe it did I'm, I don't remember I th- there's you know he kills Fatima Blush with the exploding pen he throws a guy out of a window um but, that's right yeah. off the balance yeah yeah like all the body count in that movie is in the pre-credit sequence and it turns and out those are, training exercise that's like a half a dozen guys yeah and it's all staged yeah and that's it so everything else is like and not he, a lot and so. he kills and the other guy he kill actually kills this guy he throws a jar, jar of his own piss into uh, that's right yes the the famous pee death which you know <laughs> it's a hell of a way to go yeah. so, say what you so, will about Roger Moore he never did that He'd no, no, never, and now there's no time. He's he's gone. Yeah. He'll never come back. We ne- we can say never on yeah. that one. Um, but yeah, Sean Sean Connery, uh, he killed about seventy four people on screen. Roger Moore managed eighty six. Wow. Which is, and and this brings us to a running franchise total. Sorry, I should have clarified this in terms oh, of body yes. count. Uh, we were up to one hundred and sixty six, uh, people that James Bond, nice. on his own has murdered. Nice. Which is. That's impressive. That's maybe that's close to Zarin just at the end. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> of this very movie. True. What I li- Who knows? What I like uh, going back into the film for a minute is I like when one of the bodies of water that Zorin redirects into the mines. It's just a giant lake where a guy in a lonely fishing boat is <laughs> is innocently fishing, and then before all the water is sucked out, and then it just cuts to him in a dry you know riverbed with no water around him, and he's lost and confused. Oh, good times. Yeah, it's tough. It's hard out there. Yeah. So so we, we get back to um, Roger Moore has four women he sleeps with. Nice. We don't have anything. Uh, our, our record age difference is still uh, for your eyes only between Carol Bouquet and Roger Moore at the time, who is a 30-year age difference. Right. Uh, Roger Moore is obviously older again in this film, but all the women are mostly uh, a little older too at least their late 20s right. um so so the, the most we have actually the the biggest age gap is between him and uh, mary stavin who was mm. uh, played kimberly jones who's the lady in the submarine at the start of the film interesting and also weirdly is uh, our connection i believe with twin peaks because she played heba the oh. icelandic businesswoman in in the original season one of twin peaks interesting so i did not know that very very weird uh, crossover there but uh, that's that's a 29 year age difference between them which is that's a that's a full grown adult um, <laughs> that's 30 years so so a year shy of the record yeah um, and I believe even Roger Moore commented at some point that I think uh, one of the Bond girls mothers oh, yeah. was on set it was Tanya he, Roberts' mom he was older than her and that's when he decided yes. this was enough yeah yeah there was really even he was starting to realize this is just getting a little bit creepy and uh, Tanya Roberts was 30 at the time so she was 27 years younger 
than Roger Moore when he threw in the towel, literally. Yeah. So, um, did you do box office on of this? Of course. What what <laughs> podcast host would I be if I didn't? Um, so, here we are, 1985, at a cool $30 million budget. Uh, translates to roughly $71 million today. Uh, the film grossed $50 million in the U.S., so still a considerable hit in this country alone, which is a... Uh, Roughly 119 million today, um, which uh, just as an aside, nowadays it seems like that would be a total flop if a movie made 119 million. But yeah, s- yeah, the movie business the is horribly broken right now, and suddenly yeah. you have 200 million dollar box office movies that are flops. Yeah, but uh, uh, this this the bottom is gonna fall out eventually. But uh, whatever. Yeah, but uh, but uh, still overall a hit worldwide with an additional 152 million, which is about 362 million dollars. So. You know, still hanging out over a quarter of a billion dollars is not too bad in the 80s. Um, I'd take yeah. it if they offered it to me. Yeah, and uh, no, nothing else really to mention other than the aforementioned uh, theme song, which uh, was uh, the number one song in the U.S. and the U.S. billboards charts for several weeks, so uh, good on them. Um, good on them, yeah. and, and their end credits roll, and as you say, we we don't know what's coming next, right. except that we do with the with the benefit of uh, hindsight, hindsight that we yeah. are... <laughs> 30, we we 30 will years return of with yeah, 30, yeah it's, at this point yeah the brand new film which is yeah. of course the Living Daylights which will usher in uh, a new Bond and a new era that's right a pretty short era but we'll we'll still be covering it as we count down to Bond twenty five a short era but a uh, spoiler alert a strong era I think and uh, if sure. if all goes according to plan to all you listeners out there our next uh, three films at the very least should have a guest lined up for each one. Um, all, all from familiar OpVac people you've heard from previously. But, uh, yeah, I should say we should go ahead and wrap up now. Um, Jack, where can the good people find you, should you wish to be found? I, I can be found on Twitter, where I spend far too much of my time. And you can find me at RealJackEason mm-hmm. on Twitter. And, yeah, shoot me a message, uh, talk Bond, talk movies, just talk whatever. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's Twitter, it's all nonsense. For sure, yeah. I'm also on the Twitter. I'm uh, at Jake Tropila, uh, T-R-O-P-I-L-A. And, uh, yeah, if you're listening and you're a fan, hit us up. Let us know what you think. Uh, if uh, View to a Kill is either a, a secret uh, more masterpiece or if, uh, I mean, if you think it's the worst, you don't have to You don't have to let us know. We want to hear from the positive people. But um, <laughs> That's it. Keep it to yourself, yeah, haters. Keep it to yourself, haters. Exactly. Um but yeah, other than that, you can also hit our uh, general Twitter account is uh, at Optimism Vaccine. We can any of the guys can check that and uh, respond there. You can also email us uh, at optimismvaccine at gmail dot com. Uh, if you're hey, if you're listening in your in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, why don't you go ahead and uh, leave us a nice five star review and uh, tell us about some of your favorite Bond films. Uh, we uh, we'd like to hear from our fans. Um, but yeah, that'll uh, that'll do it uh, for this. Uh, this installment uh as we get this closer bumper episode i almost said this week's episode but i know we're not banging them out that quickly but i will i will promise we will have more guests on uh in future episodes and we will be working on getting these out more frequently to uh meet with bond 25 uh no time to die so that is our promise to you um so uh i've been uh, jake tropila i'm jack eason all right thank you very much for listening for your ears only will return <laughs>